Heavenly Father, we thank You for this great day. Thank You for the opportunity to be here to worship Your name. Father, thank You for Your Scriptures that we're going to get a chance to open and, and dive into and start understanding Your Word more and more and understand what it means for our lives and, and how to live uh, according to Your Word. Father, I just ask that You would speak in this room. God, I don't believe that there's one person here today that's here by accident. Lord, I believe You nudge us and You draw us to this place. Some, Lord, it's every week. This is a regular routine of our lives and You, you draw us for some, Lord. This is first time. But Lord, I know that You brought each and every person here. For some, Lord, it's periodically I'm here. But Lord, I know Your Word has a, a teaching, a, a Scripture for us, a, a, a word of encouragement, a word of direction. And I pray, Lord, that Your Word does that in this room this morning. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to understand, to hear, and to put into action what we learned today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin this morning by asking, who in your family is the one that writes notes of encouragement or likes to write little text of notes of encouragement or is the one who leaves notes in the lunch boxes for the kids or puts notes on the, on the mirror and kind of leaving those, those kind notes of, of love and encouragement or who was it in the dating, dating years who, who wrote the hard, the, the long love letters and, and was all the gushy, mushy stuff? Who, who does that in your family? Ra- raise your hand. Who, who does that? Some of you are like, oh, I kind of want to admit. Who, 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 of you and think, who of you here thinks those people are kind of crazy? Yeah, a couple of us are willing to admit that. I know if you ask Brianna, Brianna, how many of you got those from Brianna? She'd probably count them on one hand and say, I got a few, but there's not very, not very many because that's usually not me. I'm usually not the, the note writer, but I've received some notes of encouragement. I used to have a file folder of notes that was, uh, you know, notes that were not always so kind. And then, and then I had a file folder of notes that were the kind notes. And then some years ago, I threw away the not kind folder, so I don't need it. Um, and so if you send me one of those notes, I usually just kind of, I, I read it and throw it away. Um, but if there's an encouraging note, then I, I keep them. And, and, I, and I usually file them away, and at times I'll go back through. But I'm not usually the one who's very good at writing the notes of encouragement, the, the, the letters of love, so to speak. It's usually not, not me. It'd be much more my wife who does that. And I bring that up to you because today we start a new journey and over the next 8 to 10 weeks we're going to focus on one of God's letters, one of His love letters, so to speak, to the church. And it's pretty cool because it's a love letter that's, that's in print now that we can go back and read it and study it and try to understand it, but it's really God's encouragement and God's direction to those who are in Christ. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be diving into this. For some of us, it'll be like going back to look at something we've read before and you go, oh, I remember that. Just kind of like when you pick up an old letter and you read that and go, I remember when that was written and why that was written and what the time was. And for, other of us, for others of us, it'll be like picking it up for the first time and getting that first letter, that first letter of love and looking at that and be able to dive in and go, oh my goodness, this is God's love letter to us. These are God's words of direction and encouragement and guidance. And so rather you're new to the Scripture or rather you've been in this before, God's Word has a lot for us as we begin this journey. Open your Bible to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. Uh, it's a book that's written by the Apostle Paul. Anytime we start a, 
a new study and a journey through a, through a letter or a book, I like to spend a few moments looking at some of the history and some of the background. It's so important as you go through a letter to understand some of that history and that background because getting the background in that setting helps us to get a better understanding of the words that we read and that we study when we put it within context of what we're trying to look at. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter around A.D. 60. He had a long-distance relationship with his recipients. The distance was about a 1,000 miles away. He was in a Roman prison. Now you stop and think about this for a moment because when we think about prison, and some of you understand this, when we think about prison, we think about having a nice cot, three meals a day, having a play yard, go out and shoot some hoops or whatever you want to do. Um, Maybe they'll have cable television. That was not prison. For Paul, prison was a damp, dark kind of hole in the rock, so to speak, with a dirt floor. Um, Maybe a cup of water once or twice throughout the day. Maybe a little something to eat just to keep them alive, but there wasn't a lot. And, and, the, and the darkness was probably mostly, the prison was mostly dark all the time. And so as he's writing a letter, he's probably writing by candlelight. And he's in there because of his faith in Jesus and because of his proclamation of Jesus. And so they arrest him for that. Colossae was in Asia Minor, which is known today as present-day Turkey. And so here he is in what's known as present-day Turkey, a thousand miles away from Colossae, and one of the unusual facts about this book is that Paul is writing to a group of people that he had never met before. Matter of fact, commentators believe that the man named Epaphras was converted under Paul's ministry, and that Epaphras actually started this church in Colossae, and so Paul starts to hear about them. The church was flourishing until some false teachers came and disrupted the growth and confused their theology. And so this young church was was really starting to take off as they understood what it meant to be in Christ and to live in Christ. And Paul's purpose in writing this letter was to encourage these believers and and to combat errors in the church. And so he wanted to come alongside and say, hey, you keep going, you stay strong in your faith, and now let me also give you some warnings of some things that were not accurate. See, false teaching was creeping in that area and was influencing this young church. The false teaching was partly pagan and partly known as legalistic Judaism. The mixture of philosophies, these beliefs and errors are called synchronism. The Jewish element asserted that believers had to observe certain days, deny themselves some types of food, and follow us various rituals. And if you do that kind of stuff, then you'll be good. The pagan segment emphasized self-denial, the worship of angels, a, a mystical wisdom that was available only for those who had special knowledge. And so in that culture, those things were blending together. And then this young church was also trying to understand and hold on to what they understood about Jesus and who they were in Christ. And so Paul recognized that the most dangerous part of this heresy was the devaluing of Christ. Lowering who is Christ. He's really not that important. He's really not the Savior. He's probably just a good man who walked on earth. So he focused most of his attention on the supremacy of Christ. That Christ is supreme over all this other stuff you're hearing about. And so Colossians is, I think, in my opinion, the most Christ-centered book in the entire Bible. Because if you want to understand who Jesus is in Christ, 
dive into the book of Colossians. It's one of the reasons why we're studying it now. Our goal for this year that I laid out to you during the month of January is that we as a church fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, that we get to know Jesus this year, that we try to understand everything we possibly can about who Jesus is, what Jesus did, what Jesus wants of us, what our relationship is with him. And so this book, as we dive into Colossians, it's all about Christ Jesus. This study is so important today. There's a lot of cultural confusion about Christ. We must come back to His absolute superiority and preeminence in our lives. But our world is broken and, and struggling. Our country is struggling because there's so much mixed views today. So much confusion. People borrow a little bit from this and a little bit from that. It's called pop theology. Take a little bit from a movie, a little bit from a TV show, a little bit from some books that I read, a little bit from some philosophy I picked up in college, a little bit from social media things I'm reading, articles that I pick up. We pick up all these little kind of beliefs. We mix them together and we allow them to influence us. And that's exactly what was happening in the church in Colossae. So Colossians is one of Paul's shortest letters. I think it's one of his most exciting. We're encouraged to explore the treasures of the gospel and to order our lives under the lordship of Christ. Now that's going to be a challenging word for us to wrestle with. Under the, the lordship of Christ, which means under his authority. And in our culture today, we don't want to give authority to anybody. We want to stand upon ourselves, and so it's going to test us a little bit. We'll see that wrong doctrine always leads to wrong living. And I'm going to suggest that the reason why our country is in such a stinking mess right now is because we don't understand doctrine at all. And unfortunately, a lot of the people in the church don't understand doctrine, and so I think it's very important that as your preacher, we lift up some really good doctrinal teaching during this series. Because if our doctrines are messed up, then we don't know how to behave and how to think and how to act and who we are in Christ. And so this is a very doctrinal book to understand some of those things. Now while we're going through it section by section, it's important to remember and keep in mind that this is primarily a letter. It's a letter. So they would have sat down and read that letter in one whole setting. It would have been like someone giving you a love letter. You wouldn't have read a little bit of it and said, okay, and I'll set that aside and I'll come back to it a week later. Okay, let me read a little bit more and come back a week later. You would have read the, you read the entire thing, whether it's one paragraph or 10 paragraphs, whether it's one page or 20 pages, you'd sit down and read that love letter that's been given to you. And so that's how this is put together. Now, the cool thing is, is most of us, we receive a letter. If we hold on to that, we go back and we kind of reread it and relook at it. And that's what they would have done too. And so we're going to take this section by section, but to fully comprehend it and to get all the meaning out of it, you will do well if you would take time to say, you know what, I'm going to read this book a few times throughout the week. It's only four chapters. It'll take you about 15 to 20 minutes probably sit down and read it all by yourself and just say, God, speak to me as I read this. Or if you listen to it on some kind of iPod or, or tablet or something like that, uh, some kind of device, you may be able to listen to it in 10 minutes. There's a little trick if you didn't know that, but on some of these things, you can actually speed up the voice and let it talk to you faster. 
But I mean, you can, you can read it and take your time with it and just dive in and spend time reading this book. I would encourage you to read it three or four times every week while we're going through this because as you read it and then as you're in growth group and discussing it and then as you're hearing sermons about it, you really start to glean everything that God has for us out of it. So let's begin by looking at Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Now, you could read that just as a general greeting. Okay, he, okay he's opening a letter and saying hello. But there's so much packed in just those first two verses. It is a standard form of letter writing for the first century. Paul starts by inducing himself and greeting his readers. But let's think about the name Paul for a moment. You know what the name Paul means? Is It means little. Paul simply means little. He was nothing in himself, but he was called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And so the word apostle derives from a verb that means to send on a mission. Paul wasn't even one of the original 12 apostles. But he had a special commission by the will of God. He did not choose this career. This career was kind of chosen for him by Jesus himself in Acts 9.15 where it says, This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. So Paul was chosen. This. Paul was not writing this alone, but he's with his Timothy and he refers to him as brother. Now Paul understood the importance of partnership in ministry. That you don't do ministry by yourself. You walk through together. Timothy was not an apostle but was extremely close to Paul. They had a good relationship. But they didn't have much in common. It's very interesting when you kind of do character studies of Paul and Timothy and start understanding who they were. Paul was older. Timothy was younger. Paul was more cultured. Timothy didn't understand the culture. Paul had money. Timothy didn't have money. Paul was educated. Timothy wasn't greatly educated. And so they're really quite opposites. But Paul says, you're my brother. And the church understood itself from the very beginning as a family. That's how he's addressing them. Jesus loves to break down natural barriers between people. We see it right in the very beginning. When we share Jesus in common, we have everything in common. When we share Jesus in common, we have everything in common. Isn't it great to become good friends with another believer who is totally different than you are? I mean, where else can you have someone who's a garbage collector interacting with a lawyer other than the church? Where else can you have someone who maybe is a janitor interacting with a doctor in the church and seeing that we're on the same common ground, that we are, we're still one, that we are still family, that we're all together? It's because of faith in Jesus. When we become a follower in Jesus, we become members of the family of God, and we're brothers and sisters with one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Having induced himself, Paul next greets the congregation, the holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. The word holy means to be set apart by God. Some of your translations here might use the word saints. We are not holy by our own efforts to please God, but are transformed into a holy people by a holy God. We are saints by virtue of our position in Christ. And so God makes us a holy. Faithful brothers and sisters reflects to the fact even in the midst of false doctrine, many of them were dependable and faithful to the truth. I want you to notice the believers were in Christ and in Colossae. 
In the Greek, this is the same preposition. They were in Christ and in Colossae. This is the same for true for you, you and I. We're in Christ and we're in Lexington or, or wherever you live. Someone was walking out and they said, well, I'm not from Lexington, I'm from Ohio. And I said, well, bless you, but we try not to think about Ohio people too much. But they are in Christ and, and in Ohio. We are in Christ and we are in Kentucky. We are in Christ and we are in Fayette County. We are in Christ and we are in America. We are in Christ and in wherever we live or work or roam or go or things that we do. We are called to live out our position in Christ of where we are and who we are. Faithful believers are also public witnesses. Our position in Christ and our proclamation within our culture is incredibly linked together. Incredibly linked. Because we belong to Jesus, we must call others to believe. We, we are citizens of heaven on sight in Fayette County. Paul continues his greeting by saying, grace and peace to you from God our Father. The word grace comes from a Gentile culture and peace has its roots in the Jewish understanding of shalom. Paul didn't use the customary Greek salutation of hail or greetings, which can mean something like, hey, what's up? He, he raised the bar, so to speak, as he spoke to them. Instead, he chose the word with that grace or unmerited favor that only comes from God the Father. And he says, grace and peace to you. Grace always precedes peace. The grace of the Father. Grace is a provision in the Christian life. Peace is the enjoyment in those provisions. And so Paul brings that to them and says, I bring you grace and peace. Why? Because he knows who they are in Christ. If someone does not have peace in their life, it's because they haven't experienced grace yet. If you don't have peace in your life, it's because you're struggling with understanding of grace. When we receive grace, we'll have peace of God. We'll experience the peace of God and we'll have the means to be at peace with others. And Paul says, you have this peace. You have this peace because of the grace in God. As we look at verses 3 through 8, it's important to keep in mind that this passage in 3 through 8 is one long sentence in the Greek and is built around the subject of thanksgiving. Paul's overwhelmed with thankfulness. He's thankful for the Colossians. He's thankful for the gospel. And he's thankful for Epaphras. Let's look at these together. Let's begin with verse 3 and see his thankfulness for the Christians. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we heard, have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. The faith and the love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. Even though Paul needs to address some problems Colossae, he begins by expressing thankfulness. He doesn't go right in and say, hey, let me deal with some of the false teachings you're dealing with. Let me address some of these issues. He first lifts them up and says, let me say thank you. He uses the pronoun we to emphasize the corporateness of the ministry together. That's not just me. This is We're bringing this together. Thanksgiving must be part of every kind of prayer. Notice that Paul says that he always gives thanks. So when he hears of other Christians, people are living in Christ, the first thought in his mind is, I want to be thankful for them. I don't want to persecute. I don't want to talk negative. I want to bring thankfulness. This was his practice and habit. And the word thanks here comes from a Greek word that's translated Eucharist, which actually refers to the Lord's Supper. So when we have communion, we're celebrating, we're receiving the elements, it's actually a time of thankfulness because we're saying thankful for Jesus and thankful for who we are and thankful for the grace of being in Christ. In these first three verses, 
Paul's already laying a groundwork for the major teaching of Colossians. The supremacy of Christ. That Christ is supreme. Christ is above all. In verse 2, he uses the phrase, in Christ. In verse 3, he refers to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an interesting statement when he says, our Lord Jesus Christ. Is not Lord and Jesus Christ all the same person? Why did he not just say our Lord? Or why did he not say Jesus? Or why did he not say Christ? I think because he's referring to all three aspects. The title Lord refers to his deity. He's saying he is God and Lord over all. The name Jesus speaks of the incarnation. He was born in the human race and he walked on earth. And Christ reminds us that he came as a sacrifice for our sins and a promised Messiah. So he addresses him with three different names, Lord Christ and Jesus for all three different identities of who he is. It's amazing when you start breaking those down word by word. Paul then focuses on a triad of thanksgiving. Even though he never visited the Christians in Colossae, he had heard of their faith and their love and their hope. This is like what we wrote in 1 Thessalonians 1.3 when he says, We continue to remember before our God and Father, your work produced my faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now while these three are linked together in other passages, the phrase is not just merely a formula thrown in for effect. It's actually a genuine statement in which each word is profoundly significant. He says faith is mentioned first because it's a starting place for every Christian of life. He says it begins with faith. They weren't committed because they had a commodity of faith, but because they had put their, their trust, their confidence in Jesus Christ. So he's saying, when I'm hearing about your faith, it's in Jesus, and he's commending them. It's amazing to me that the testament of your faith reached all the way to Paul in a Roman prison. Stop and think about that. A thousand miles away. How did that get to him? They traveled by foot. They traveled by animal. They didn't have a car. They didn't have an airplane. They didn't have a bus system. They didn't have the internet. And somehow, word travels a thousand miles away to Paul about their faith. I wonder, I wonder if my own neighborhood would commend me for my faith. Would your own workplace know, hey, that's a Christian. I commend them for their faith. Would your own neighbors and your own friends know, hey, that person's a believer and I commend them because they are strong in their faith. Even if they don't agree to go, I may not agree with them, but I commend them because they are people who live out their faith. I wonder. See, the vertical dimension of faith then leads to a horizontal element of love. We have our vertical dimension of my faith in God because of what Jesus had done but then, if we really have faith in God, then a horizontal that Paul mentions is this idea that we, we love. Paul uses the article, the, in front of it to make it a more concrete idea. Love is not an abstract principle or some gushy feeling. This love that Paul is referring to is agape, which has sacrifice as its key character and is displayed in actions. Love is a transforming act because it's really faith in motion. Galatians 5, 6 says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The church is supposed to be a place of love. True faith always produces love. You can tell when someone exhibits genuine faith in Christ when they demonstrate unconditional love for imperfect people, for Christians and, and non-Christians. It'll be easy to love believers when we're in heaven. That's going to be simple because... In heaven, there will be no capacity of sin. It's much more difficult to love Christians and, and those who are not Christians because of sin. And so, how do you do in that area? 
Are you exhibiting that in your life today? Paul was saying, your faith has made you strong, but you're living that out by your love. Are there people, if you were to think about today, that you go, you know, I'd rather not interact with them. Are there some people in your mind that you go, yeah, I'm so glad that they're sitting in this section of the church and I'm sitting over in this section of the church. Or are there people that when we sign up for growth groups like we're doing right now and there's lists out there and you start looking over the list, you're like, oh, I can't be in that group because that person's in there. Let me see what the other groups have. Or are there people at work that you're like, man, I just would rather not interact with them. I'd rather just stay away from them. I don't, I, I don't have a lot of love. I don't have a lot of space in my heart for them. I'm just going to kind of stay away and, and just try to ignore them. See, what Paul is saying is, because of your faith in God, your love is evident by how you're caring about loving other people. And he goes on and says, our shared faith and mutual love, I think, is a result of common, he says, hope that is stored up for you in heaven. God has stored up hope for us in heaven. We can have full confidence in our faith and express our love without holding back. We don't have to vaguely wish for something better to come when we have complete confidence in the reality of heaven. And Paul points to that and he says, listen, you're living with that hope of heaven. Why have faith in Christ if there is no hope for a glorious future? Why have, why have love for others if it really doesn't matter in the end? See, hope makes all the difference because we have a confident expectation that everything God says in the Word is true today or it will come true in the future. Hope is stored up for us like a treasure. God guarantees our salvation and eternity through Jesus. I see people all the time who walk without hope. You probably see them too. You see them in your workplace and you can tell by, by interacting with them how they're so stressed over life or what's going on in work and you're like, boy, they, they must not have hope. You, you can see them when you go to a hospital. You can see people when you go to a funeral and you're like, boy, this funeral is a place of hope or it's a place where there's no hope because the person who was who has passed knows Christ or they did not know Christ. You can see it now just watching social media and seeing what people are posting about what's going on in our culture today. And you can see, are they living with hope or are they not living with hope? Paul's thankful because they have their hope, their faith and their love and their hope in Christ. Then secondly, Paul says, I'm thankful for the gospel. Paul is thankful for the faith, love, and hope of the Colossians. And then look at verse 5, we continue on and into 6. He says, And that you have already heard about the word of truth, the gospel, that has come to you all over the world. This gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. He points to the gospel. God's scriptures. He says this is doing something inside of you, basically. These verses reveal, I think, four key elements about the gospel that Paul's drawing to. The gospel is truth. The last part of verse 5 helps us see that our hope is based solidly upon the word of truth, the gospel that comes to you. The word of truth, the gospel, the same thing. Gospel simply means good news. And the verb form means to preach or to proclaim the good news. The gospel is to be shared with others because it's the word of truth. There is no other truth worth proclaiming. And Paul's committing them, saying, I see you're holding up the gospel. You're proclaiming it. Secondly, he says the gospel is for the whole world. Paul's rejoicing because the gospel is going all over the world. The gospel that has come to the city of Colossae is the same gospel going around the globe. The same message of good news that has gone from one city to another city, from one generation to another generation, that has reached all the way to us today in 2017 is the gospel of good news. And Paul is saying, you're doing your part in spreading that good news. So we're not just focused on our community. 
And Paul realized that. That's why we do mission work. That's why we support some works across to some other states and some other mission fields and some other countries because we want the good news, the gospel, to spread not just in Lexington or not just in Kentucky, but across America and to other continents. Thirdly, Paul says the gospel produces life and growth. Look at verse 6. This gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it. The grammar here indicates that there is an innate energy in the message of the gospel. The gospel is alive, it's growing, it's spreading, it's bearing fruit, and it's spreading some more. When the gospel is heard and believed, lives change radically. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God. That word power actually comes from the word dunamis, where we get our word dynamite from. And so the gospel message is the dynamite of God to break through hard hearts and sinful habits so that the fruit of the Spirit can grow into maturity. I like the word growing in this verse because it reminds me that we're all in a process of growing, but we should be growing and changing. I've literally seen the fruit of the gospel change lives. And I hope you've seen that in your life, where the gospel is intersecting your life and you're allowing the gospel to work in your life. I don't have anything more powerful than the gospel. If you're not experiencing fruit, and if you're not growing, and you're like, I'm kind of stale, I'm stuck, I can guarantee you that there's nothing wrong with the power source. This gospel has lived now for centuries, for thousands of years, and it has changed thousands and millions and billions of lives. Spiritual growth, I think, should be normal for every Christian. We shouldn't be shocked when someone says, ah, oh, God's Word is changing me. It should be like, yes, that's what it's supposed to do. But many times what happens, we're, like, we're shocked when someone starts living and moving out of darkness and living in light. But Paul says this gospel has the power to change lives. The gospel, fourthly, is the grace of God. The last part of verse 6 refers to God's grace and all its truth. The message of God's truth is a message of grace. That you and I cannot earn acceptance before God. Salvation is by grace, true faith. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops and follow some mad, man-made regulations. And, and Paul was dealing with this because of those false teachings that were happening. One of the false teachings of the church in Colossae was legalism. And so Paul established that the gospel is the good news of grace. It's the good news of grace that God's unmerited favor is being given over to you. We don't receive what we don't deserve. When, not, not, not when we're good enough, but when we recognize that we haven't been good enough and that we need faith in Jesus. Of all the world religions, Christianity alone is one that offers salvation without demands or pious works. That's the one that, that is a, it's a free gift of salvation. The gospel of grace is truly good news. It brings faith and love and hope and desire with others. And i got to tell you, there's all kinds of false teachings even floating around us today. We must be aware, church. I don't know if you've been watching the show that's on A&E, but there's a show on A&E, and if you haven't, they've been dispelling and showing Scientology. And we've been watching some of that, and our children have been watching some of that. You watch that, and it opens your eyes, not only Scientology, but all other kinds of religions that are out there. And need to be aware. And so Paul was trying to raise their eyes to be aware, to say, hey, know the gospel of grace that's from God. Last area that Paul was thankful for was Epaphras. Look in your Bibles, verse 7 and 8. It says Paul says, You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. 
Verse 7 and 8 is where Paul's directing Epaphras, who we believe is probably the church planner of, of that day. And Epaphras is faith and love and hope and action. He illustrates that the good news of the gospel, grace, must be proclaimed. Pa- Paul developed people like Epaphras wherever he went and reminded the Colossians that they had first heard the gospel from one of their own. Paul's saying, look at Epaphras. He passed this word on. He was a dear fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ. He faithfully took the message of grace to them, and as a result, he could be trusted. Epaphras both evangelized Colossae and edified the believers through his teaching. The verb learn is the basis of the word disciple, and so he was learning, and as he was learning, he was passing it on to the people that he was interacting with. See, God's plan has always been God's plan has always been to use human instruments to bring forth the gospel to a dying world. It's always been his plan. Epaphras was faithful in spreading the seed. He wants us to be faithful to him in the gospel of grace. And the question we must ask when we're looking at this is, are we doing that? Church, when when is the last time you spoke the name of Jesus to somebody? When's the last time you shared your faith in Jesus and said, here's what I believe about Jesus. Here's how Jesus has changed my life. I'd ask you to consider that. See, we need to ask the question differently in today's culture. See, what happens in central Kentucky and many other states is we will ask the question and say, well, where do you go to church? And you've got to know in central Kentucky, there's a lot of people who can say, well, I go to church and they can fill in the blank. But going to church does not mean they know Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? Going to church does not mean you know Jesus. We need to change the question and rephrase the question. We need to start asking, who is Jesus to you? And have that kind of conversation. See, that's what Epaphras was willing to do. This section ends with a report by Epaphras who's talking about, about, the love, about their love in the Spirit. So Epaphras is lifted up. When Epaphras traveled all the way to Rome to tell Paul about these Christ followers, he told them that they had a spirit-produced love. The word actually told us was a legal term indicating evidence. And so Epaphras brings evidence of who they are and what they're doing. That means he gave the apostles solid proof of their conversion, their subsequent spiritual growth, and their love in the spirit. And so Epaphras comes and confirms to Paul what he had already been hearing And so Paul writes this letter and then sends it back. He says, let's encourage the Christians. Let's make sure their gospel stands strong. Now, when you read and study the Scripture, we must ask an important question. If you're taking notes, I'm glad you are. If you haven't taken a note, you need to take this one note today. Whenever you read the Bible, whether you're in Genesis or you're in Psalm or you're in Matthew or you're in Colossians, you need to ask the question, God, what do you want me to do? See, if we don't, we just read the Bible and it's just knowledge. But if it's going to have power in our lives, we need to ask the question, God, what do you want me to do? How do I make this personal? How do I apply it? God, what action steps, in other words, do you want me to take now that I've read your gospel? And so I asked those questions, and you would probably come up with some other ideas out of this text, but let me share with you four action steps I see. One is be thankful when you pray. Instead of praying prayers like, Lord, give me this, Lord, give me that, Lord, help me today, what about, Lord, thank you? 
Thank you for what I'm going through right now. Thank you for the roof over my house. Thank you for the clothes on my back. Thank you for the church I can go and worship to. Thank you for the car that gets me back and forth to work. Thank you for the sunshine I have today. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my relationships. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy and your justice and your love in my life. Thank you. And then go on and talk to God about some of the challenges maybe you have. Related to this, let's follow Paul's example and pray with a heart of thankfulness for other believers. Lord, thank you for this church and these believers. Lord, thank you for this church and these believers. Lord, thank you for this church and these believers. Lord, thank you for these people. Thank you for this faith group. Thank you for these missionaries here. Thank you for these missionaries there. And we go from personal thankfulness to thankfulness about God's kingdom work. Secondly, I want to ask you to identify one person you have a hard time loving. I think I see that in a text. I'm convinced there's at least probably one person in your life that you simply probably don't like. I know I have some. I hope I'm not on your list. I want you to think about that person. What about asking God to help you by the power of His Spirit, Lord, will you give me the love that's supposed to be expressed because of my faith in you? And thank Him then for the opportunity you had to put your faith into action. Lord, thank you for so-and-so. Yes, God, I have a hard time loving them. Yes, God, they get underneath my skin. Yes, God, they drive me crazy. But thank you that they're in my life because, Lord, you're going to use that person to grow me. That's a Christ-centered type prayer. Ask him to change your heart and he'll teach you how to do that. Number three, take the next step in your journey of growth. Our faith is supposed to be a growing faith. Perhaps you need to plug into a growth group. Today's the last day we're doing our growth group promotion. I mean, you can always jump into one, but why not jump into them while they're kind of at the very beginning, tables out there in the lobby. But maybe you need to plug into a growth group, and you've been putting that off. You're like, ah, I'm not sure about time for that, or I'm not sure about going to someone else's house. That's a little uncomfortable. I'm not sure if I'll know those people. I'm not sure if I want to get that close. What about just kind of let go of all that and saying, all right, God, you had this opportunity before me, and I want your kingdom work to grow inside of me. I want, I want your God to grow inside of me and so I'll jump into a growth group. We use the growth guides that are on the chairs and you take that guide home, you do some study, you take that with you to your growth group. Maybe you need to allow that good news to become real in your life. Some of you, some of you in this room maybe need to cross the line of faith and accept Jesus as Savior and be baptized. The water is warm and ready. And so today, if today was your day and as we move into our time of communion, you're like, man, I want to do this today. You just walk to the back of the room and we'll talk and we'll, just, we'll help you make those kind of steps of faith. You could use your connection card and say, I, I think I'm ready, but let's talk some more. I need someone to guide me a little bit. We'll help you in that journey. If there's something to keep you from bearing fruit, maybe your next step is to just determine with God what it is and deal with it. God, what is it that's holding me back? God, what is the struggle? What is the sin? What is the temptation? What's in my way? Maybe there's something you just need to repent of. You need some accountability. You need to walk through that through that. Perhaps you've just been simply too busy with things that keep you from what is truly important. Maybe you need to do a better job of prioritizing just making worship a priority. For some of you, this is a very regular priority. You need to take steps beyond this. For some of you, you're like, I kind of hit and miss. And you need to say, you know what? I need to make this a priority. That I'm not, not going to be here just today. I'll be here next week and the week after. And I'll commit maybe the next 10 weeks while we're going through the book of Colossians. I'm going to be there. I'm not going to miss. And just trust God to use the gathering with other believers to do something big in your life. Ask the Holy Spirit, God, what is it? What's the growth step I need to take in my spiritual journey with you? 
Fourthly, determine this week to share God's grace with at least one person. You are here today because somebody told you about Jesus. That's how we're here. Every one of us probably here because someone mentioned Jesus to us. If you are in Christ, you're probably in Christ because someone shared a message with you. Maybe a mom or a dad as you were raised and they said, we're going to go to church, we're going to learn about Jesus. May have been a friend who said, do you know Jesus? May have been somebody else. But we need to share Jesus and we need to stop church. I beg you, stop asking people, where do you go to church? And I want to challenge you this week with the help of the Spirit to pray and look at somebody, somebody you work with, maybe it's a neighbor, Maybe if you're not real comfortable, you're not sure, maybe to start with someone within the church that you know, you see running around the hallways around here, you see them activities, and look at them and say, who is Jesus to you? That changes the conversation dramatically. When you're at work and you're on a break, can, can I ask you a real important question I've been, been wondering about? Yeah, sure, ask me. Can I just ask you, who is Jesus to you? And you pray before you go in that conversation. You say, Spirit, I'm going to ask the question. And I'm going to leap and I'm going to trust you to guide the conversation there. It would be amazing what will happen as you have that kind of conversation and trust God because that's what Epaphras did. Epaphras took the name of Jesus to an area, shared the name of Jesus, and a church rose up. And then Paul commends him and says, your faith and your love and your hope is so strong. Your message of the gospel is great. I want to close by reading a letter. Just a little section of a letter that was written by a great preacher. His name is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He penned these words. He said, when we were united by faith to Christ, we were brought into such complete fellowship with Him that we were made one with Him. And His interests and ours became mutual and identical. We have fellowship with Christ in His love. What He loves, we love. He loves the saint and so do we. He loves the sinners, and so do we. He loves the poor, perishing race of man, and so do we. And Paul was lifting up this church in Colossae and saying, we see your love lived out by your faith in Christ and the power of the gospel. Church, that's the call for us today. Will you live out your faith in the power of the gospel? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these great words. Thank you that we have the opportunity to be able to open up your scriptures, Lord. To be able to read your scripture, to be able to study your scripture, to be able to, to dive into it in and, and like no other way, Father. What a privilege we have to have a, a full, complete gospel. Thank you, Lord, for Paul. Thank you for Epaphras. And thank you for those who followed and have carried the message of the gospel from one city to another city, from one country to another country, from one time span to another time span, so that thousands of years later, Lord, we're here worshiping the same Lord and the same Savior, Jesus Christ. We say thank you. Lord, we're going to celebrate in communion this morning. And communion is a great time, Lord, of thankfulness. We say thank you for your son's body given on a cross and Jesus' blood that was shed. We say thank you. Thank you that we can have salvation because of that great gift given. The gift of Jesus, the grace of God given to us, unmerited favor just handed to us, Lord. Thank you. And so we honor you and we worship you this morning, Lord, in this time of communion and we praise your name.
Lord, help us to be people who will not just honor you and praise you here, but we will honor you and praise you in everything we do, and we carry the name of Jesus with us. It's in his holy name we pray. Amen.